The first half of part one, section four of experiments and observations on different kinds of air by Joseph Priestley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Part one, section four of air infected with animal respiration or putrefaction. That candles will burn only a certain time in a given quantity of air is a fact not better known than it is that animals can live only a certain time in it. But the cause of the death of the animal is not better known than that of the extinction of flame in the same circumstances. And when once any quantity of air has been rendered noxious by animals breathing in it as long as they could, I do not know that any methods have been discovered of rendering it fit for breathing again. It is evident, however, that there must be some provision in nature for this purpose, as well as for that of rendering the air fit for sustaining flame, for without it the whole mass of the atmosphere would, in time, become unfit for the purpose of animal life, and yet there is no reason to think that it is, at present, at all less fit for respiration than it has ever been. I flatter myself, however, that I have hit upon two of the methods employed by nature for this great purpose. How many others there may be, I cannot tell. When animals die upon being put into air in which other animals have died, after breathing in it as long as they could, it is plain that the cause of their death is not the want of any pablum vitae, which has been supposed to be contained in the air, but on account of the air being impregnated, with something stimulating to their lungs, for they almost always die in convulsions, and are sometimes affected so suddenly, that they are irrecoverable after a single inspiration, though they may be withdrawn immediately, and every method has been taken to bring them to life again. They are affected in the same manner, when they are killed in any other kind of noxious air that I have tried, viz. fixed air, inflammable air, air filled with the fumes of brimstone, infected with putrid matter, in which a mixture of iron filings and brimstone has stood, or in which charcoal has been burned, or metals calcine, or in nitrous air, etc. As it is known that convulsions weaken, and exhaust the vital powers, much more than the most vigorous voluntary action of the muscles, perhaps these universal convulsions may exhaust the whole of what we may call the vis vitae at once, at least that the lungs may be rendered absolutely incapable of action, till the animal be suffocated or be irrecoverable for want of respiration. If a mouse, which is an animal that I have commonly made use of for the purpose of these experiments, can stand the first shock of this stimulus, or has been habituated to it by degrees, it will live a considerable time in air, in which other mice will die instantaneously. I have frequently found that when a number of mice have been confined in a given quantity of air, less than half the time that they have actually lived in it, a fresh mouse being introduced to them has been instantly thrown into convulsions, and died. It is evident, therefore, that if the experiment of the black hole were to be repeated, a man would stand the better chance of surviving it, who should enter at the first, than at the last hour. I have also observed that young mice will always live much longer than old ones, or than those which are full-grown, when they are confined in the same quantity of air. I have sometimes known a young mouse to live six hours in the same circumstances in which an old mouse have not lived one. On these accounts, 
experiments with mice and, for the same reason, no doubt, with other animals also, have a considerable degree of uncertainty attending them, and therefore it is necessary to repeat them frequently, before the result can be absolutely depended on. But every person of feeling will rejoice with me in the discovery of nitrous air, to be mentioned hereafter, which supersedes many experiments with the respiration of animals, being a much more accurate test of the purity of air. The discovery of the provision in nature for restoring air, which has been injured by the respiration of animals, having long appeared to me to be one of the most important problems in natural philosophy, I have tried a great variety of schemes in order to effect it. In these, my guide has generally been to consider the influences to which the atmosphere is, in fact, exposed, and as some of my unsuccessful trials may be of use to those who are disposed to take pains in the farther investigation of this subject, I shall mention the principle of them. The noxious effluvium, with which air is loaded by animal respiration, is not absorbed by standing, without agitation, in fresh or salt water. I have kept it many months in fresh water, when, instead of being meliorated, it has seemed to become even more deadly, so as to require more time to restore it, by the methods which will be explained hereafter, than air which has been lately made noxious. I have even spent several hours in pouring this air from one glass vessel into another, in water, sometimes as cold, and sometimes as warm, as my hands could bear it and have sometimes also wiped the vessels many times during the course of the experiment in order to take off that part of the noxious matter which might adhere to the glass vessels and which evidently gave them an offensive smell but all these methods were generally without any sensible effect the motion also which the air received in these circumstances is very evident was of no use for this purpose i had not then thought of the simple but most effectual method of agitating air and water, by putting it into a tall jar and shaking it with my hand. This kind of air is not restored by being exposed to the light, or by any other influence to which it is exposed, when confined in a thin vial in the open air for some months. Among other experiments, I tried a great variety of different effluvia, which are continually exhaling into the air, and especially of those substances which are known to resist putrefaction. But I could not by these means affect any melioration of the noxious quality of this kind of air. Having read in the memoirs of the Imperial Society of a plague not affecting a particular village, in which there was a large sulphur work, I immediately fumigated a quantity of this kind of air, which will hereafter appear to be the very same thing air tainted with putrefaction, with the fumes of burning brimstone, but without any effect. I once imagined that the nitrous acid in the air might be the general restorative which I was in quest of, and the conjecture was favoured by finding that candles would burn in air extracted from saltpetre. I therefore spent a good deal of time in attempting, by a burning glass, and other means, to impregnate this noxious air with some effluvium of saltpetre, and, with the same view, introduced into it the fumes of the smoking spirit of nitre, but both these methods were altogether ineffectual. 
in order to try the effect of heat, I put a quantity of air, in which mice had died, into a bladder, tied to the end of the stem of a tobacco pipe, at the other end of which was another bladder, out of which the air was carefully pressed. Then I put the middle part of the stem into a chafing dish of hot coals, strongly urged with a pair of bellows, and, pressing the bladders alternately, I made the air pass several times through the heated part of the pipe. I have also made this kind of air very hot, standing in water before the fire, but neither of these methods were of any use. Rarefaction and condensation by instruments were also tried, but in vain. Thinking it possible that the earth might imbibe the noxious quality of the air, and thence supply the roots of plants with such putrescent matter as is known to be nutritive to them, I kept a quantity of air, in which mice had died, in a vial, one half of which was filled with the fine garden mould. But, though it stood two months in these circumstances, it was not the better for it. I once imagined that, since several kinds of air cannot be long separated from common air by being confined in bladders, in bottles well corked, or even closed with ground stopples, the affinity between the noxious air and the common air might be so great that they would mix through a body of water interposed between them, the water continually receiving from the one and giving to the other, especially as water receives some kind of impregnation from, I believe, every kind of air to which it is contiguous, but I have seen no reason to conclude that a mixture of any kind of air with the common air can be produced in this manner. I have kept air in which mice have died, air in which candles have burned out, and inflammable air, separated from the common air, by the slightest partition of water that I could well make, so that it might not evaporate in a day or two, if I should happen not to attend to them but I found no change in them after a month or six weeks. The inflammable air was still inflammable. Mice died instantly in the air in which other mice had died before, and candles would not burn where they had burned out before. Since air tainted with animal or vegetable putrefaction is the same thing with air rendered noxious by animal respiration, I shall now recite the observations which I have made upon this kind of air before I treat of the method of restoring them. That these two kinds of air are, in fact, the same thing, I conclude from their having several remarkable common properties, and from their differing in nothing that I have been able to observe. They equally extinguish flame, they are equally noxious to animals, they are equally, and in the same way, offensive to the smell, and they are restored by the same means since air which has passed through the lungs is the same thing with air tainted with animal putrefaction it is probable that the one use of the lungs is to carry off a putrid effluvium without which perhaps a living body might putrefy as soon as a dead one when a mouse putrefies in any given quantity of air the bulk of it is generally increased for a few days but in a few days more it begins to shrink up and in about eight or ten days, if the weather be pretty warm, it will be found to be diminished one-sixth, or one-fifth of its bulk. If it do not appear to be diminished after this time, it only requires to be passed through water, and the diminution will not fail to be sensible. 
I have sometimes known almost the whole diminution to take place upon once or twice passing through the water. The same is the case with air, in which animals have breathed as long as they could. Also, air in which candles have burned out may almost always be farther reduced by this means. All these processes, as I observed before, seem to dispose the compound mass of air to part with some constituent part belonging to it, which appears to be the fixed air that enters into its constitution, and this being miscible with water, must be brought into contact with it, in order to mix with it to the most advantage, especially when its union with the other constituent principles of the air is but partially broken. I have put mice into vessels which had their mouths immersed in quicksilver, and observed that the air was not much contracted after they were dead or cold, but upon withdrawing the mice and admitting lime water to the air, it immediately became turbid, and was contracted in its dimensions as usual. I tried the same thing with air tainted with putrefaction, putting a dead mouse to a quantity of common air in a vessel which had its mouth immersed in quicksilver, and after a week I took the mouse out, drawing it through the quicksilver, and observed that, for some time, there was an apparent increase in the air, perhaps about one-twentieth. After this, it stood two days in the quicksilver, without any sensible alteration, and then admitting water to it, it began to be absorbed, and continued so, till the original quantity was diminished about one-sixth. If, instead of common water, I had made use of lime water in this experiment, I make no doubt but it would have become turbid. If a quantity of lime water in a vial be put under a glass vessel standing in water, it will not become turbid, and provided the access of the common air be prevented, it will continue lime water. I do not know how long, but if a mouse be left to putrefy in the vessel, the water will deposit all its lime in a few days. This is owing to the fixed air deposited by the common air, and perhaps also from more fixed air discharged from the putrefying substances in some part of the process of putrefaction. The air that is discharged from putrefying substances seems, in some cases, to be chiefly fixed air with the addition of some other effluvium, which has the power of diminishing common air. The resemblance between the true putrid effluvium and fixed air in the following experiment, which is as decisive as I can possibly contrive it, appears to be very great, indeed much greater than I had expected. I put a dead mouse into a tall glass vessel, and having filled the remainder with quicksilver, and set it, inverted in a pot of quicksilver, I let it stand about two months, in which time the putrid effluvium issuing from the mouse had filled the whole vessel, and part of the dissolved blood, which lodged upon the surface of the quicksilver, began to be thrown out. I then filled another glass vessel, of the same size and shape, with as pure fixed air as I could make, and exposed them both, at the same time, to a quantity of lime water. In both cases the water grew turbid alike, it rose equally fast in both the vessels, and likewise equally high, so that about the same quantity remained unabsorbed by the water. One of these kinds of air, however, was exceedingly sweet and pleasant, 
and the other insufferably offensive. One of them also would have made an addition to any quantity of common air with which it had been mixed, and the other would have diminished it. This, at least, would have been the consequence if the mouse itself had putrefied in any quantity of common air. It seems to depend, in some measure, upon the time, and other circumstances, in the dissolution of animal or vegetable substances, whether they yield the proper putrid effluvium, or fixed, or inflammable air. But the experiments which I have made upon this subject have not been numerous enough to enable me to decide with certainty concerning those circumstances. Putrid cabbage, green or boiled, infects the air in the very same manner as putrid animal substances. Air thus tainted is equally contracted in its dimensions. It equally extinguishes flame and is equally noxious to animals. But they affect the air very differently, if the heat that is applied to them be considerable. If beef or mutton, raw or boiled, be placed so near to the fire, that the heat to which it is exposed shall equal, or rather exceed, that of the blood, a considerable quantity of air will be generated in a day or two, about one-seventh of which I have generally found to be absorbed by water, while all the rest was inflammable. But air generated from vegetables, in the same circumstances, will be almost all fixed air, and no part of it inflammable. This I have repeated again and again, the whole process being in quicksilver, so that neither common air nor water had any access to the substance on which the experiment was made, and the generation of air, or effluvium of any kind, except what might be absorbed by quicksilver, or resorbed by the substance itself, might be distinctly noted. A vegetable substance, after standing a day or two in these circumstances, will yield nearly all the air that can be extracted from it. In that degree of heat, whereas an animal substance will continue to give more air, or effluvium, or some kind or another, with very little alteration, for many weeks, it is remarkable, however, that though a piece of beef or mutton plunged in quicksilver, and kept in this degree of heat, yield air, the bulk of which is inflammable, and contracts no putrid smell, at least in a day or two. A mouse treated in the same manner yields the proper putrid effluvium, as indeed the smell sufficiently indicates. That the putrid effluvium will mix with water seems to be evident from the following experiment. If a mouse be put into a jar full of water, standing with its mouth inverted in another vessel of water, a considerable quantity of elastic matter, and which may, therefore, be called air, will soon be generated, unless the weather be so cold as to check all putrefaction. After a short time, the water contracts an extremely fetid and offensive smell, which seems to indicate that the putrid effluvium pervades the water and affects the neighboring air, and since, after this, there is often no increase of the air, that seems to be the very substance which is carried off through the water, as fast as it is generated, and the offensive smell is a sufficient proof that it is not fixed air, for this has a very agreeable flavor, whether it be produced by fermentation, or extracted from chalk by oil of vitriol, affecting not only the mouth, 
but even the nostrils, with a pungency which is peculiarly pleasing to a certain degree, as any person may easily satisfy himself who will choose to make the experiment. If the water in which the mouse was immersed, and which is saturated with the putrid air, be changed, the greater part of the putrid air will, in a day or two, be absorbed, though the mouse continues to yield the putrid effluvium as before, for as soon as this fresh water becomes saturated with it, it begins to be offensive to the smell, and the quantity of the putrid air upon its surface increases as before. I kept a mouse producing putrid air in this manner for the space of several months. Six-ounce measures of air, not readily absorbed by water, appeared to have been generated from one mouse, which had been putrefying eleven days in confined air, before it was put into a jar, which was quite filled with water, for the purpose of this observation. Air thus generated from putrid mice standing in water, without any mixture of common air, extinguishes flame, and is noxious to animals but not more so than common air only tainted with putrefaction. It is exceedingly difficult and tedious to collect a quantity of this putrid air not miscible in water, so very great a proportion of what is collected being absorbed by the water in which it is kept. But what that proportion is I have not endeavored to ascertain. It is probably the same proportion that that part of fixed air which is not readily absorbed by water, bears to the rest, and therefore this air, which I at first distinguished by the name of the putrid effluvium, is probably the same with fixed air, mixed with the phlogistic matter, which, in this and other processes, diminishes common air. Though a quantity of common air be diminished by any substance putrefying in it, I have not found the same effect to be produced by a mixture of putrid air with common air, but, in the manner in which I have hitherto made the experiment, I was obliged to let the putrid air pass through a body of water, which might instantly absorb the phlogistic matter that diminished the common air. Insects of various kinds live perfectly well in air tainted with animal or vegetable putrefaction when a single inspiration of it would have instantly killed any other animal. I have frequently tried the experiment with flies and butterflies. The aphids also will thrive as well upon plants growing in this kind of air as in the open air. I have even been frequently obliged to take plants out of the putrid air in which they were growing, on purpose to brush away the swarms of these insects which infected them and yet so effectually did some of them conceal themselves, and so fast did they multiply in these circumstances that I could seldom keep the plants quite clear of them. When air has been freshly and strongly tainted with putrefaction so as to smell through the water, sprigs of mint have presently died upon being put into it, their leaves turning black, but if they do not die presently, they thrive in a most surprising manner. In no other circumstances have I ever seen vegetation so vigorous as in this kind of air, which is immediately fatal to animal life. Though these plants have been crowded in jars, filled with this air, every leaf has been full of life. Fresh shoots have branched out in various directions, and have grown much faster than other similar plants, growing in the same exposure in common air. 
This observation led me to conclude that plants, instead of affecting the air in the same manner with animal respiration, reverse the effects of breathing, and tend to keep the atmosphere sweet and wholesome, when it is become noxious in consequence of animals either living and breathing or dying and putrefying in it. In order to ascertain this, I took a quantity of air, made thoroughly noxious, by mice breathing and dying in it, and divided it into two parts, one of which I put into a vial immersed in water, and to the other, which was contained in a glass jar standing in water, I put a sprig of mint. This was about the beginning of August 1771, and after eight or nine days, I found that a mouse lived perfectly well in that part of the air in which the sprig of mint had grown, but died the moment it was put into the other part of the same original quantity of air, and which I had kept in the very same exposure, but without any plant growing in it. This experiment I have several times repeated, sometimes using air in which animals had breathed and died, and at other times using air, tainted with vegetable or animal putrefaction, and generally with the same success. Once I let a mouse live and die in a quantity of air which had been noxious, but which had been restored by this process, and it lived nearly as long as I conjectured it might have done in an equal quantity of fresh air. But this is so exceedingly various that it is not easy to form any judgment from it, and in this case the symptom of difficult respiration seemed to begin earlier than it would have done in common air, since the plants that I made use of manifestly grow and thrive in putrid air, since putrid matter is well known to afford proper nourishment for the roots of plants, and since it is likewise certain that they receive nourishment by their leaves as well as by their roots, it seems to be exceedingly probable that the putrid effluvium is in some measure extracted from the air by means of the leaves of plants and therefore that they render the remainder more fit for respiration towards the end of the year some experiments of this kind did not answer so well as they had done before and i had instances of the relapsing of this restored air to its former noxious state i therefore suspended my judgment concerning the efficacy of plants to restore this kind of noxious air till i should have an opportunity of repeating my experiments and giving more attention to them accordingly i resumed the experiments in the summer of the year seventeen seventy two when i presently had the most indisputable proof of the restoration of putrid air by vegetation and as the fact is of some importance and the subsequent variation in the state of this kind of air is a little remarkable End of the first half of part one, section four.